guys could all stand with me. We'll be reading Matthew 6, 9 to 13 in IV. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as is always the case, I'd invite you to just sort of take a deep breath now. Here at Neighbors, we believe that when these passages and the word of God is opened, God actually speaks to us. And so we want to yield our ears and our hearts to whatever he may say. As we make our journey through the Our Father, spending 12 weeks studying and meditating in this amazing, amazing prayer. Let's pray one last time. Holy Father, gracious Spirit, Son of God, King of the universe, your will be done. Your will be done. This morning we come and we surrender our will to you with joy and delight because your will for us is our highest flourishing and our greatest happiness. Though it may not seem like that on the first reckoning, by our earthly sight, what we see in the world and even in our personal lives may not come as flourishing and happiness. But ultimately, in praying your will, we are praying for the fullness of the cosmos to be redeemed and restored. And so meet with us now. Speak to each individual where they find themselves respectively. Speak to our church community. Continue to increase and bless the presence of your spirit within our hearts that we might be a true and living temple of God here in the city of San Diego. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Dan, read it again. What does the text say? (laughs) This was Dr. Brashear's, Gary Brashear's response to me. He and I had fallen into one of our recurrent tangles that we got into all too often during my master's degree program under his tutelage. These little skirmishes would break out all the time between him and I, almost always centered around how to interpret a particular text in the Bible in reference to God's will. I'd get to guffawing and wrestling with him and fighting with him over the way that he interpreted a particular text, because when I arrived at Western Seminary, I was convinced of a view that was utterly faithful to the Bible. I ardently at the time subscribed to a particular theological view that taught that God is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he is providential, and that he does as he wills. And can I tell you, that's actually a very biblical position to hold. God is all of those things and more. My problem was it was only one half of what the Bible reveals about God's will. In my model, in my theological model that I arrived at Western Seminary with, I had neglected much of what the Bible teaches about humanity's partnership with God. I had actually had to do some real gymnastics with some passages to reinterpret passages that showed explicitly we participate in carrying out God's will as active agents. And Gary, in this theological cohort that I was a part of, was not going to allow for that reinterpretation. He wasn't going to have it. Now, the truth be told, I'll be honest, this imbalanced perspective by the time I arrived at Western Seminary 
It had actually turned God in my mind into this cruel caricature. In my mind, by that point in my life, God could do whatever he wanted. It was already decided, so my prayers were pointless, and as far as I was concerned, none none of it mattered. As well, the disappointments and the struggles at this particular season of my life, they had actually convinced me that this providential God, he was just a cruel puppet master. He was providentially up there just pulling the strings of a hapless, helpless humanity being tugged along in his will. He blessed a select few, and the rest of us were either passed over, some I viewed were pummeled according to, quote unquote, his will. And I was downright angry. And underneath that anger was a deep, deep wounding and pain. And Gary was going to have none of that either. Gary is a pastor of pastors long before he's a brilliant theologian, and his arguments were with me more for my heart and my relationship to God than for my theological perspectives. So through three years of monthly, because we did eight-hour intensive, eight-hour intensive sessions with Dr. Bashirs and my classmates, I would get to arguing with Gary, and I'd try to sound really smart so I could try to overwhelm him. So I would, I would wax on the finer points of Augustinian soteriology, and I would say it that way to sound really smart. And then I'd go on about the philosophical conundrums of determinism and libertarianism and compatibilism. I'd even throw in a little Molinism in there and the big grand ideas of middle knowledge in the hopes that Gary would be like, oh, wow, this guy's really smart. Big words. I cave to you, Dan. You're right. And with every single argument that Gary and I would get into... We'd come across these passages, and I would reinterpret them, and I'd say to him with as much certainty as I could muster, Gary, listen, I don't think you're being exegetically faithful. I think you're hedging. I think you're contradicting yourself. So Gary would sit there while I would wax eloquent, sort of twisting the mirrors and blowing the smoke, so to speak, very patient with me. And after I'd done all of this talking and big wording and arguing with him, he would stop, and he would say, Dan, read the text. What does it say? What does the text say? And it was that process that actually saved my ministry, my soul, and my Christianity, because what emerged through those years of carefully reading the Bible again wasn't this cruel puppet master God pulling the strings of humanity, but instead every text began to point to a tender and generous and loving God who is partnering with his people in accomplishing his will on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible never allows for an overly reductionistic view of either God's will or human will. Rather, the Bible continually lays out this infinitely complex, this kaleidoscopic vision of God doing as he wills in the world in concert with your will, with my will together. In other words, when we begin to discuss the nature of God's will, your will be done, Father, And our will, how does that all interplay? The Bible invites a deep humility, a complete surrender, and total trust. That's pretty much par for the course, along with every other biblical topic we've ever covered in the life of this church. Now, Jesus was a rabbinic teacher, and he was a master student of the Bible. Jesus' worldview was not formed by memes or by political talking points. He wasn't concerned with the social agendas of his day. He certainly wasn't influenced by the philosophical musings of the Greeks or the intellectual elite of Rome. Jesus Christ was Bible-saturated. 
And so when Jesus prayed, he prayed biblically. He prayed in accord with how the Bible describes prayer. And prayer in this biblical Jesus-y sense, it is, friends, complex and unfathomable when it comes to asking God to do his will in the world through our will because God rules and does as he wills. God knows all things. God's will will be done. The Bible is clear on this. And... Our prayers influence God. Our requests influence how his will unfolds in the cosmos. Our wills will God to move in some mysterious way. Listen, those last lines in each segment, God's will will be done. Our wills will God to move in some mysterious way. And so when we pray, We lean in and we pray with every fiber of our being according to what we can perceive as best, what we see as right and good and true and beautiful. We pray for ultimately what we desire, our will to unfold in the world. But as we do so, we simultaneously are learning to pray as an act of surrender to God, praying in the way that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so as we pray in the way that Jesus instructed, our will meets with God's will. And the incredible power of praying the Our Father is that the melting of our will into his will occurs over time. His will actually becomes our will, and our will somehow in the mystery of God's transformative power and answering of our prayers becomes his will. Don't forget, the Our Father reduces us to this childlikeness where today you can cry out as if you were a little kid, Abba, I want this, I want that, I think this will be good for me, I think this will bring happiness, I think this will help the world. We pray that like two-year-olds throwing temper tantrums as often as we possibly can. Simultaneously, the Our Father, this prayer, takes us from childlikeness, toddler temper tantrums, give me what I want, all the way through, slowly revealing some of our infantile short-sighted, destructive nature of our surface desires and points us towards the Father's will. This section of the prayer, your will be done, it will slowly erode our fleshy and our worldly will. And it exposes the subterranean will of God that has been planted deep within you as a new creation as his adopted son or daughter. The prayer is actually a long path of discovery moving us from this world and its sources of flourishing and happiness to heaven, where our Father dwells. It reorders the will of our flesh with its self-focus and its sinful patterns, and it transforms us into selfless and right-hearted creatures of generosity and sacrifice. And so, to pray for God's will to be done is actually to pray for the heights of human flourishing personally and collectively as a society. When we lean in and we say, Father, your will be done, we are praying for the immeasurable happiness of heaven to invade every facet of our existence. It has been said, this is one of my favorite, I think it's Ignatian. I haven't been able to find where this quote actually comes from. I think it's Ignatius. It's been said that sin is our refusal to believe that God has our highest flourishing and greatest happiness in mind. I just want to read that again. Sin is our refusal to believe that God has our highest flourishing and greatest happiness in mind. This is actually, in my mind, the best place to start talking about God's will, this idea of human flourishing and greatest happiness in reference to God's will. 
If I were to summarize the whole teaching of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as it pertains to God's will, I'd say something like this. God's will is to bring about your greatest flourishing and highest happiness for his glorious name for all of eternity. His will is actually to bring about your flourishing and your greatest happiness for the glory of his name for all of eternity. The cosmic mechanics that are orchestrating the universe today are governed by God's will, and they are actually engineered to satisfy and fulfill our deepest longings. God's will for you and I is our highest and ultimate good. His will is the highest and ultimate good for all of humanity. In fact, that is why we exist. That is why creation exists, so that God can do good and bring flourishing, that we might say God is good and brings flourishing. It is the point of existence. So anytime we enter into prayer saying, Father, your will be done, we are actually praying, Father, may myself, my neighbors, my city, my world, may we experience the heights of flourishing and the profound depths of true happiness. But as I said, we are temper tantrum throwing toddlers who don't quite understand what God's will and how God's will brings our highest flourishing. Immaturity, our limited perspectives within time and space, sin, all of these things distort our vision of flourishing and happiness. So what we think is best more often than not is not. What we think is best and will most definitely bring our, and oftentimes, dear friends, what we want is good. But sometimes that actually becomes when we want that which is not good, our source of depression, lack of fulfillment, sadness, and self-destruction. Now, what I want to do for just another 10 minutes here is rather than dealing with God's will as some sort of like abstract idea out there, I'd like us to just look at some concrete examples of God's will from the Bible. And then I want you to discern in your body, do you resist this being God's way of human flourishing and highest good, or do you resonate with it? Just pay attention as we go through these passages and kind of detail them out, talk about them a little bit. As we read these passages, do you see this as a way towards human flourishing and greatest happiness, because what you'll discover is that oftentimes what we think is flourishing and happiness, Jesus categorically dismantles. Let's start with the teachings of Jesus. John 4, 34, Jesus said this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So how does that fit into our sort of urban foodie definition of flourishing and happiness? I know for me, whenever I think of happiness, whenever I think of flourishing, of course, I think of being in a, in a Michelin star restaurant. And there I am eating poached turbo, which is just a fancy name for fish. <laughs> and it's, it's saffron-infused bureau blanc. That's a, I think that's French for white butter. I had to look that up. <laughs> it's always followed by this decadent ensemble of chocolate and caramel mousse. In other words, whenever I think about flourishing and happiness, it's usually looking towards the high-end, high-dollar, high-social position places with food that exceeds the norm. And Jesus said, nope, obedience is better than that. Obedience is better than position, place. Obedience is better than high dollar, high end, unique experience. Obedience is better. Obedience is his food. Obedience is more nourishing, more life-giving, more joy-producing than anything that this world could offer to sustain us with. And so when we pray, your will be done, we are praying to make the will of our God our ultimate source of sustenance and satisfaction, and that will lead to true happiness and flourishing. This is what the psalmist meant when he prayed, taste and see that he is good. 
The point being, flourishing is more than food and high-end sensational experiences and places. Now, this is where things get a little bit tricky because I don't want you to hear me wrong. Those things, Michelin star restaurants and poached turbo <laughs> and white butter, these things can be part of human flourishing. They can be part of our happiness and joy. There's nothing wrong with going to a Michelin star restaurant and eating those delicious foods and having a great time in those things, but they are penultimate. They are not ultimate. They are secondary to the ultimate source of joy, which is if in one night I find myself enjoying this Michelin star restaurant, wonderful then I'm flourishing, I'm happy. As much as I am having rice and beans with some impoverished third world missionary in the middle of nowhere. Does that make sense? Another example from Jesus. Jesus said, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. So from food to family, from food to family, and in a church like this where there's a lot of little babies being bored, I want you to hear this from the very beginning of the beginning of your family, biological family. Flourishing and happiness are found in family. That that's how the middle class sort of meticulously curated green grass, white picket fence, suburban dream goes in our world. Taglines like family's everything and then living room walls just covered with those awkward family photos. <laughs> They're all teaching our collective imagination that you want to know where you're going to be truly happy? You're going to be truly happy when family is everything. Now, there's no doubt about it. Family is good. Biological family is good. The traditional nuclear family, I'm moving away from that language, but the traditional nuclear family, especially a family firing on the power of the Holy Spirit and obedient to the scriptures, family is absolutely fantastic. But Jesus said, true flourishing and happiness exists in this expansive family that goes well beyond the bonds of blood and genes. Jesus created a family that includes marrieds and singles, every tribe, tongue, and nation, a family who does the will of of God. And Jesus was so adamant about this that he required radically altered allegiances when it came to our physical families. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's incredible. When we pray your will be done, we are praying to reorient our allegiance to the family of Jesus Christ. We are praying with our true family, and we are learning that, yes, indeed, flourishing and happiness is found in family, but it's found in this diverse, broad family of Jesus Christ that extends well beyond the bonds of blood and genes. This is why we press weekly for you to consider getting into a community and to stay in a community until those bonds become more real to you, more full for you, more thorough for you. Jesus did this across the gamut of every segment of human experience, where we say, that looks like human flourishing, that looks like human happiness. Jesus reframed God's will in the midst of all of that as the ultimate source of meaning, flourishing, and happiness. He deconstructed our earthly categories of happiness, from food to family, from wealth to work, from body image to social position, Jesus reconstructed all of these things and oriented them around the eternal kingdom of heaven. And so flourishing for Jesus culminated in God's upside down, backwards from the world, will being done. Now, again, the balance here, the balance. Does that mean that we shouldn't pray for and enjoy food? Of course not. Should we not be praying for our families and more babies, piles of babies, and wealth and work? And should we not be praying for healthy bodies? And should we not be praying for work position and career position and social? Of course, we can pray for all of those things. We should be praying for all of those things. Here's the miracle, though. 
We pray like crazy for those things because in the kaleidoscopic wisdom of God, he works his will through our earthly prayers. What we think looks good and we start praying for it, God is able to, in this complex, kaleidoscopic, amazing way, work through our prayers to give what is best to us as he works his will through us. In fact, God's so good at this, biblically speaking, he can even work through our worldly prayers when we're just, you know, flat out praying for something totally worldly. He knows how to orient that and work that to bring his will about our fleshy prayers, even our distorted prayers. The point being, pray, pray, pray. Pray for what you want. God will sort it out in his will, and your will eventually will become more and more his will. And don't stop praying for what you want. Don't stop praying for what you want. It is so good because it is in that space that there is where God's will is truly beginning to unfold through you. The problem with us is we set, I'm going to get off notes here for just a bit. We set the bar low. We're like, well, my will wasn't accomplished in the will of God. Therefore, I'm not even going to pray for it because it hurts too much. The hope is too dangerous. Please, please, for the love of Jesus, I am with you in that. I have spent years taking the bar and saying, you know what, I just won't ask for it. (laughs) And there's all that desire. And the Lord's like, you silly little kid. I see all that desire. I see you throwing your temper tantrum in your heart while you're doing 30 minutes of silence. You look all zen on the outside, but on the inside, you're a train wreck, buddy, and I know it. Pray your guts out in the will of God. What does that exactly mean? It means you pray what you know to pray right now, which is your deepest desires, and you let your Father sort it out. This section of the, our Father, it is slowly training us over time to look deeper and longer and more earnestly for his will, according to his way, to be accomplished in the food we eat, the families we live with, the work we do, so on and so forth. A couple more examples, and these ones get a little more difficult, so just track with me, okay? We're going to move now to Paul and Peter in the New Testament. Direct statements explicitly. What is the will of God? Paul says this. It, 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, it does not get much more straightforward than this. Paul says, if we take this whole concept that God's will is our greatest, highest, highest flourishing and greatest happiness, Paul says, your greatest flourishing and your highest happiness is going to come through God's will. And that will, namely, in this passage, is self-control of our bodies, primarily around sexual behavior. This type of thing just does not make sense in our social moment of sexual liberation being the path to fulfillment, satisfaction, and happiness. I can tell you this was a shock to the system. When I came into the church, I was like, oh my gosh, they like value purity and virginity. If they find out what I am, I am dead. And I just didn't have a category for it. I literally didn't have a category for sexual self-control. I was like, why would you not? What? Why would you do that? That doesn't seem like flourishing. That just seems silly to me. This is in the early days of my Christianity. When we are praying your will be done, what we are actually praying is, Lord, I need your strength and wisdom and vision to obey with my body when my body says that looks like it's way better than exercising self-control. It's a mystery. It's difficult. And the self-control of our bodies, friends, it's not where we're just restraining exercise in our sexuality and in our sexual behavior. According to the New Testament, when you do a survey of the New Testament— The Christian exercises self-control in their language, in attitudes, in the way that we handle money, in the way that we treat others, and all of those things, those points of restraint and self-control and prudence and cautiousness, Jesus says, Paul says, Peter says, 
This is the way to true flourishing, to true happiness. In fact, in every facet of the human experience, there will always be a way that looks like that's going to bring true happiness to me, and it ends in destruction. While God's way initially will look like, at best, less fun, which is what I always thought. That looks like way less fun, at best. And at worst, it begins to feel like, hey, that's a loss. That actually costs, that's a sacrifice. If I do what you're telling me to do, that's like real sacrifice. That's not flourishing, that's sacrifice. That doesn't make any sense. But it ends in a maturity and in a happiness and in a flourishing that you really can't get your head around until you actually do it, until you actually begin to grow in it. Paul taught his people that God's will was trustworthy regardless of outcomes and circumstances. I'm going to get very soft and tender through this section. Please stay with me. Paul makes the most ludicrous statement in the entire Bible. Give thanks in all circumstances. Who was this guy? Who's this guy think he is? I can't wait to meet Paul and be like, that was a dumb line. I would have cut that one. My teaching team would have edited that. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will. You want to know God's will? It's to give thanks in all circumstances. When we pray, Father, your will be done, we are giving thanks regardless of our circumstances. And I am telling you, I am a novitiate, a baby, an immature, temper tantrum-throwing toddler when it comes to gratitude in all circumstances. I'm trying. I'm trying. 25 years of walking with Jesus, and I'm just now really trying to say, Thank you for this. Thank you for that. I trust you in this, Father. Because to pray this way actually forces the body to believe that flourishing and happiness is not contingent upon outcome. Something that we merit-based sort of negotiating masters with God people can't understand. I do this and this and this, and I get this outcome. When instead the biblical narrative says, no, you sit, rest, receive, worship, trust, pray, and give thanks regardless of outcome. And it is Terribly difficult. The more painful the situation, the more difficult it is to give thanks. And here's a very important detail. We are not grateful for the hardship or the pain or the loss. That is not God's will. God's will is not the pain. He's your dad. I cannot tell you how long it has gotten me to get to this place where I can say that and actually believe it. He's my father. And this pain and this shame, and this embarrassment, or this loss, it's not, it's not his will for me. But it is his will for me to say, Father, I thank you, because I know that you're going to providentially bring good and beauty and flourishing and our happiness through the brokenness of this life. And I know that that can be cliche, and I know that that can also be salt in the wound of some who have such a level of pain in their lives right now. Those cliches can be salt in the wound, or they can be the very comfort of the Word of God himself saying, I will work this for good. I am utterly committed to you, totally in love with you. Thank me for that truth in the midst of this horrific pain and loss. Which brings us to the most difficult passage of your will be done in the context of the New Testament, Peter says this, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I had a dear friend, and I text him once, like once a year from this cohort, and he and I were on theologically opposite spectrums. 
I arrive at Western Seminary, a good five-point Calvinist. God meticulously designs and sovereignly rules over every atom in the universe. That's where I come from. My friend across from me <laughs> was what we call an open theist. He basically taught that, believed that God doesn't know the future, that he has no control, that everything is just pure chaos, and then God works through that. That's, that's a caricature of what he believed. He was actually brilliant. I still respect him more than anything and consider him a dear, dear friend. And, and Josh and I would go at it. We would fight. And then Gary would basically put the puck in play with like 12 of us, all theologically different perspectives, 12 or 15 of us, and then just let the chaos ensue for eight hours. And it was awesome. But one of the things that I would often argue is, look, suffering is God's will. Look, it's, look Peter says, suffering according to God's will. Now, here is where there has been a mouth. And you want to know what that was doing to my soul? Making me angry. And underneath that was a little kid just in such pain. How could you do this to me? How could you do this to them? Why would you do such terrible things? What kind of a will are you? Within the infinite mystery of God's providence in our prayer life, Gary would say, read the text again. Meaning, read Genesis all the way through Revelation again. Because you have Peter here saying, some things are suffering according to God's will. Some scenarios, it is indeed God's will. The crucifixion of Jesus was the ultimate expression of a human suffering according to God's will for the benefit and saving of the cosmos. But this is where I got hung up all those years ago. I would take a verse like this and I would say, see, suffering according to God's will, even, why even pray about my pain? He did this. And I would finger point with rage and anger and then tears when I was by myself. But that, that, interpretation of this passage, apart from the rest of the whole complexity of the Bible that talks about prayer and pain and providence of God, all these many stories and sections of scripture was, was not feeding my image of God. And so everything in my world happened in reference to suffering. Everything in my world happened according to God's will. But over the many years of reading the text carefully, as Gary would always say, meaning every Bible story, every sentence. Do it carefully. Look what happens when this person prays. Look what happens when this person prays. Look how God's will seems to change here. Look at how he, he literally turns from going one direction from another. Look what he does here with this person. You have to read these things in concert with one another. And so biblically speaking, when it comes to suffering this morning, and if that's you, there are things that are categorically not God's will. There are things that happen at the will of human beings who have a will of their own. And yes, God does allow that. Yes. But it's human beings' will doing horrible things to each other. There are things that happen in a broken world that, are in that is in rebellion against God, period. And we can never forget as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that we have this enemy who surrounds us, this satanic, demonic influence, and Satan inspires and does horrific things in attempt to thwart God's goodwill of human flourishing and greatest happiness to the glory of his name. So when we pray, your will be done, in the context of suffering, I want you to understand this. When you pray, your will be done, and you're suffering, you are praying layers and layers of things. Let me walk you through four of those layers. Number one, you're praying for strength to commit your to a faithful God who is good and will work all things for good. When you pray your will be done and in this pain right now you pray your will be done, you are just asking him, give me strength to do your will. I'm going to trust you that there is good and flourishing coming from this. Number two, you're praying that you can trust that even if you suffer according to his will, even if in this season there's an allowance of something horrible happening to you, some loss, some gain not given to you, something that you have ached for more than you can even give words to, and after 20 years of praying for it, you're still not getting it, then I want to suffer. 
I want to understand that one day I believe the joy and flourishing of perseverance and character development and hope and love shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit will be all satisfying. And even in a moment like this, I can say I'm catching glimpses of that. Glimpses of that. When we pray, your will be done, we are resisting the deformed will of our own fallen hearts and humanity. We're resisting. We're literally praying as an act of war against the horrible things that we do to each other in our own liberty. And when we pray, your will be done, we're actually declaring war. It's an act of resistance against the spiritual enemies of God that are wreaking havoc in this world today. Did all that make sense? A few more ideas here. When we read the whole of the biblical text and we pray the will of God in suffering, it emerges, the will of God suffering in, in suffering emerges through these, this tapestry of factors and forces that we just, we cannot get our heads around. But what you need to understand today is that when you pray your will be done, there are, there are realities that you can comprehend. There are concrete answers that you're asking for, and then there are things that you will never be able to comprehend, and we may never comprehend throughout kingdom and eternity. I've even surrendered that to the Lord. Like, maybe all of eternity will just be kind of a head-scratching thing going, can I see a little bit more? For millions and millions of years, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, where we say, oh, that was flourishing. And 10 trillion years from now, I'm saying, that is my greatest happiness. That's my greatest happiness. You're so good. So, so good. He's working his cosmic will right now my dearest brother and sister, he is working good and flourishing in and through every request that you make today. From the immature, selfish temper tantrum, give me what I want, which I still do every morning. I'm doing it right now in my heart. To the most mature, sacrificial, Father, your will be done, in line with Jesus in Gethsemane saying, your will be done. Which leaves us with this final concrete question that I want to take us to communion with. How can we continue to grow in maturity and actual joy? Not joy at our pain and loss or suffering according to the will of God in those certain scenarios, but how can we continue to grow in maturity and joy, that subterranean joy that says, I am praying the will of the Father being done and I'm finding flourishing and happiness in the midst of that. How do we do that? How do we discern if we're in God's will? Two answers. Number one, assess if you really want to be in his will above all else. I have watched Christians play the game for a long time as a pastor. And they say they want God's will. They want human flourishing and they want their greatest happiness. But when it comes to actually what God's will is, giving thanks in all circumstances, self-control with the body, heart, mind, and soul, when it comes to God's will as laid out in food and family, when it comes to God's will in wealth and work, when it comes to God's will, I don't think I really want that. I don't think I really want that. I would suggest that some of the deconstruction we see in this current moment in the church is people just finally saying, I'm going to be honest, I don't really want that. Everything else looks better. So I'm going to go for a ride here. I'm going to go out and eat from the pig pods of the world for a while until I realize, oh, pff, this is gross. I'm coming back. And we're seeing that happen over and over and over. You need to ascertain, do you really want God's will above all else? George Mueller, the great praying saint of England, who prayed in literally millions of dollars for orphanages that he led without ever asking for a dime, he said this about trying to discern God's will in anything. He says, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people generally is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. 
When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will actually is. And so that's the driving force behind this section of the Our Father. We're asking God to make us pliable, to shape us, and to conform us to his will, no matter how much the world or the flesh or the devil are convincing us that his will is the opposite of flourishing and happiness. It is a radical act of trust, and it has to happen over and over and over and over every moment of our lives. Your will be done. Then, having surrendered to the best of our ability, been honest with God, I don't really want your will. It doesn't look that great, but... Your will be done. I surrender to you. I trust you. I'm going to continue to follow you. I'm going to continue to be faith-filled. I'm going to continue to rest in your goodness and receive from you what you will as I ask for all that complexity and that kaleidoscope. Then you pray your guts out until your will happens or you're released from the desire. I don't know how else to answer this after 20 years of certain prayers that I've begged him to just even take the desire away. Like literally on my face, bawling my eyes out in my garage. Just take the desire away. And he doesn't. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep praying what I think would bring joy and blessing and fruit to the world until I'm either released from it or it happens. Now, I know that that sounds contradicting to point one. Dan, you just said we've got to ascertain if we really want God's will. And now you're saying point number two is pray your will out until you can't even stand it anymore. Exactly. Welcome to Christianity. Real Christianity, real prayer, not the fluffy, fluffy prosperity to hit the segment, hit the three steps to get whatever you want, genie in the bottle, and also not the stoic, God's just going to make us suffer, never give us what we want. That, that's not Christianity either. This is Christianity. Your will be done. I want my will to be done. I want my will to be done, but I want your will to be done. But your will is not what I want. But now I do want part of your will because I'm kind of seeing it over the duration of your life. Christianity is not easy. It's not easy. This is what St. Augustine said. Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. And so this quote is actually more often paraphrased as this. Love God and do whatever you want. And what Augustine was saying was this. Augustine was basically saying, when your soul falls truly in love with God, you will want to obey, and your desires and prayers over time will fall in harmony with his will. And so if your will has been laid down and surrendered to the best of your ability, then the only thing that you can continue to do, especially if you know it's a biblically good will and a biblically good desire, is pray. And you pray until it comes to pass. And if it doesn't come to pass, you keep praying. Or you wake up one morning, you're like, I've prayed myself empty. I'm free. I don't need it. I'm settled. Oh, wow. And I've gone through seasons where particular desires of mine that I've prayed that I know are good and beautiful and true, that I totally thought were calling from God. I've gone through entire seasons where I've been like, I'm released. I'm good. I don't even need to, I, Lord, what do you want me to ask for? It's absolutely wonderful. And then like, just like, I don't even know how to describe it. Like a storm comes through and this storm of desire wells up and I find myself praying the exact same thing that I've prayed for 25 years. 25 years. Our Father knows how to say yes to things according to his will. So pray your will as, as intensely as you can. Our Father also knows how to say, you got to wait on that request. You're not old enough. You're not strong enough. You're not ready for that. I know you think you are, but you, you just don't got the oomph to handle it yet. In fact, the longer I make you wait, the more oomph you're going to have. So when you do have it, you will be able to handle it. And you won't mess up my kids, and you won't mess up my church, and you won't mess up your life. He's a good, 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 good father. This is the hardest one for me because I'm pretty sure there are things in my life that this is happening to me. 
In fact, there are things that he has said, absolutely not. That's the hardest one for us as Christians to get our heads around. Our highest flourishing and our greatest good is our Father saying, absolutely not. If that strikes a sense of pain into your body, he knows that too. He knows it. Pray that pain out. That hurts. I don't understand. Why would you say no and yes to them? That's not right. That's not fair. Pray that out. And the kaleidoscopic wisdom of God will center your soul over time, and you will find release and be given a wisdom and a power that is is so great beyond your comprehension. And you will find yourself flourishing. You will find yourself happy. Does all this make sense? And you guys all nod your head yes. I'm telling you, you're lying. This does not make sense to me. (laughs) I've been trained by a Christian world that says, you do this and this and this, you get this outcome. You pray this way, you get this. You do this, you do that. And it all happens just according to plan. But the reality of my life is none of this makes sense. What I do know now at this stage of my Christianity, which is, (laughs) I would like to say mature, but I just feel like a toddler wobbling about in the world of prayer. Just go, give me what I want, give me what I want. Okay, I surrender. Give me what I want, give me what I want. Okay, I surrender. It doesn't make sense. But the invitation from our Father this morning is to enter into this kaleidoscopic complexity. This phrase has come up to me. I just got done teaching a bunch of students up in Costa Mesa uh, at a seminary that I'm adjuncting for this fall. And this phrase came up over and over and over for this one particular uh, couple. They've really been put through the ringer in a, in a, uh, a situation, a church situation. They've really had to deal with some severe pain in um, their family situation uh, with infertility and with uh, the loss of twins. I mean, really, really pain, like pain. And in praying over these students uh, during a session, I just heard this phrase over and over and over. Their pain is not my pleasure. Their pain is prayer. Their pain is not my pleasure. Their pain is prayer, and their prayer will be their pleasure. Their pain is not my pleasure. Their pain is prayer, and their prayer will become their pleasure. And it made me mad. I'm going to be really honest. It made me mad. I'm looking at this beautiful couple. I'm like, great, pain, pleasure, awesome. That's a beautiful word, Lord. And then all of a sudden, I felt myself praying out of that pain for them. like, Lord, please. And just that sense of like united communion with him and in a broken world where we don't get what we want and we don't get it how we want it and when we want it, it unites us. And I felt such union with them. And then there was this brief moment of like, is that what it feels like to be one with somebody? (laughs) Like to be so close to them, to want something so bad for them. In this broken world, dear church, that's all we can do as the family of God. Together, we can pray our pleasures in and we can rejoice with one another. When we can. You got the job promotion? You got the parking spot? Yes. Awesome. God answers prayer. Whoa. And then we can spend a lot of time in a broken world saying, I don't, I don't understand why people are dropping missiles on each other this morning. I don't understand why there's a flood that kills 60,000 people. I don't, I don't have any comprehension of that. Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And slowly my pain in looking at this broken world becomes my prayer. It's not his pleasure. And I, I really think that pleasure comes from realizing that it's not his pleasure either and that I am praying according, according to his will. 
Some of you are going to have to wait longer. That's just all there is to it. I'm just telling you straight up. Two and a half decades of praying for certain things. But I, I would invite you to join me. I'm not going to give up. I'm at a stage now where it's like, well, I'm far enough into the game. I'm not going to give up. It's not like I've tried to walk away. I can't walk away. I can't stop praying the things. So let's, let's do that together. We'll go eat burritos. We'll cry. We'll pray. It's, 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 it, is what, it is what this life is in this world. And ultimately, what I'm orbiting around here is Jesus' most impactful moment that gives us the ability to do this. The night before he's crucified, Father, please take this cup from me. Please. I want you, when you pray your desires and your prayer doesn't get answered, I want you to understand that Jesus had the exact same thing happen to him. I do not want this pain, Lord. Jesus said, I don't want to be humiliated this way. I don't want to feel exposed this way. I don't want to feel passed over and pummeled this way. I don't want to feel alone this way. I don't want to feel like you don't hear. Jesus prayed all of those things. If you're willing, I don't want to drink this cup. Yet not my will, but your will be done. This is the highest expression of mature prayer in this life. And Jesus invites us to live into it and to live from it and to receive from it in his grace and in his infant mercy. It is this prayer that grants you and I today a flourishing that goes beyond our comprehension. It's a deep subterranean joy. It doesn't rid you of your tears. It does not rid you of that gut ache and that loss right now. What it does is it births something from the kingdom beyond. And it's so subtle. Everything that Jesus did was just so like, he was so subtle so subtle. Mustard seed and leaven in the loaf, barely perceptible, but it happens over time. This cosmic restoration of all things, wrong being made right. And this morning, when we come to communion and with Jesus the King, you say, this hurts so bad, but my pain is now my prayer. I want you to know that in the, in the world of metaphysics, in this mysterious place, the enemy who's been trying to rob you and the enemy who's been lying to you and the enemy, like in my case, I know I was dealing with a lot of demonic stuff back in those days. The enemy who's been saying, yeah, that's right. He, God is pummeling you. God is punishing you. Those are all lies. And when you just simply with Jesus say, I don't want to drink this cup. You drink the cup. And so now I drink the cup. Your will be done. Satan just flees. He flees. And then you got to get up and fight again tomorrow. <laughs> and then you got to get up and fight again tomorrow. And then you got to get up and fight again tomorrow. And not pretend like you get a vacation. You're not going to get a vacation from this. So fight. Fight. And learn to eat the food that utterly satisfies and live alongside a family whose bonds cannot be broken. Pray for strength and self-control in your body and in your mind. Pray for purity and perseverance and suffering. And as we'll see next week, it's that thing, it's that that brings about heaven on, heaven on earth. In Jesus' name. Amen. Father, bless this time of communion now. Meet with us in both our pleasures and our pain. Stir our souls to receive from you what you will in your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>